Welcome back to Pastor Life Podcast from Pinnacle Leadership Associates. I'm Rhonda Blevins, Pinnacle Associate and Pastor of Chapel by the Sea in Clearwater Beach, Florida. And I'm David Brown, Pinnacle Associate and Pastor of the Welcome Table in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Today we welcome to Pastor Life Podcast our friend and one of Pinnacle's newest associates, Reverend Peggy Hames. In over 30 years of ministry, Peggy Hames has served as a therapist, a church staff member, interim pastor, devotional magazine editor, hospital chaplain, and coach. My goodness, what a what a resume she's got. Her great delight in ministry is empowering people and churches to live into the fullness of all that God created them to be. Through Pinnacle, she's living this out through coaching clergy and churches as well as leading workshops and retreats. Peggy is also the author of eight books and counting, and she brings her creative spirit to all of her work. Peggy lives in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, a place that I also lived for a period of time, so uh, know a little bit about that place. Eight books. She's prolific, David. That's right. I think you can use that word, prolific. (laughs) Prolific. Wow. Well, with this second episode of season four, uh, we're asking all of our guests to teach us something we don't know. And so Peggy today is hopefully she's she's hoping to teach us something about trauma informed ministry and, and why it matters. Well, and I think, if I'm not mistaken, that Peggy is also putting together a um, coaching webinar about trauma-informed coaching. There's information on the Pinnacle website about that, and maybe Peggy will even share some of that with us as we talk today. Yeah, 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 we'll have to ask her about that. So let's welcome to the podcast, Reverend Peggy Hames. Thank you. I am so glad to be here, and I'm glad for the opportunity to talk for a bit about this really important subject. Well, we are so glad to have you. Is there anything you would add to that introduction? Is there a ninth book already in the works? (laughs) There's always a book in the works. My goal is to have no thought unpublished. In the context of our conversation today, I'll also add that for about 10 years, I served on staff of the Safe Harbors Workshop with five-day residential workshop for adult survivors of child abuse. Hmm. So I had the chance to do really intense work in the area of trauma. So obviously this is a passion for you, and you're bringing that to your ministry with and for uh, Pinnacle. Why don't we start kind of with the question that makes the most sense to me is, why does it matter? Why should clergy care about a trauma-informed ministry? Teach us something we don't know, Peggy. <laughs> well, the, the first answer to that is you have traumatized people sitting in your pews. That in every church, there are people who've had some kind of experience of trauma. Uh, and, and let me define a little bit about what that means. Trauma is a, a series, an event. It's the result of a series of of events or an event that's emotionally disturbing or life-threatening. Something um, the author of the book, My Grandmother's Hands, said, we can have a trauma response to anything we perceive as a threat, not only to our physical safety, but to what we do, say, think, care about, believe in, or yearn for. So in this stage of COVID, whatever stage we're in, if you think about what that impact has been for the people in our congregations, 
we, we desperately need to have this uh, trauma awareness now. But I will also say that it was true even before COVID. Um, when they developed the assessment of adverse childhood experiences, which is things like whether witnessing abuse, experiencing abuse, poverty, having a, a family member jailed. Um, Kaiser did a survey, and these were middle-class, well-educated people who were financially secure enough to be able to have health insurance. Only one-third of the people surveyed did not have any ACEs experience. I was going so, to ask you, yeah, how, what kind of what percentage of people would be uh, kind of considered living in trauma or dealing with trauma? But that doesn't necessarily mean it's the same thing as PTSD, right? Right. Like a diagnosed condition. Right. And, and people's responses to trauma are very different uh, for a host of factors. Like for with child abuse, child sexual abuse. There have been studies that have come out that if a child is able to tell someone, to be heard, to be believed, and then to have that adult take action to protect them, the impact of that trauma is greatly diminished. They may not grow up to have PTSD because of that. Bessel van der Kolk tells the story of a, a kid who, from his I think kindergarten, grade school, classroom window, watched the first plane hit the tower on 9-11. And the next morning he drew a picture, you know, the flames and planes, but he had these little circles at the bottom. And so what are those? He said, those are trampolines. So that if people, if it happens again and people have to jump, they can just bounce. Because he had the experience of being able to walk to safety and then to be reunited with this very loving family. So he felt safe and secure. So he didn't experience that great trauma in the same way as someone who didn't have that support. Well, it, it seems like, obviously, as you're defining trauma, I think in our minds, we think of a traumatic event and we think about that, uh, you know, the the result of abuse or some sort of of, of crisis moment or a major accident or something like that. And I really appreciate you talking about those um, sort of low doses of trauma that people experience consistently, some people over time. Mm -hmm. And it, it's, it seems like both of those are really worthy of attention as we think about what it means to have a trauma-informed ministry, right? Right. And, and we can create this tiny little box of, okay, this is what trauma is. And this is what traumatized people look like. And it just doesn't fit. And again, the, the pandemic's a good example. It was very traumatic for some people because they were taken away from the things they cared about, like being able to physically care for a loved one. For other people, it wasn't. And I've had people tell me, you know, I feel guilty for saying this, but it was actually okay for our family because we had a chance, we had more time to be a family together and we had the resources to get through. So we can't look at an event or a series of events and assume that we know. Also, it makes a difference if a person has a stable, healthy childhood and then experiences a tra traumatic event in adulthood. 
as opposed to the person who has a chaotic, unsafe childhood. Sure, sure, absolutely. I guess what I'm hearing and what you're you're saying so far is that as we think about leading in churches where there are all sorts of people sitting in our pews, there are a high percentage of people both in the pews and up on the platform, right? And behind the mm-hmm. pulpit who have experienced some amount of either acute or ongoing trauma in life. Mm-hmm. And so where do you begin to think about how we ought to we ought to shape our ministry in light of that? So that's a great question. I think there are several different dimensions to that. One is to be prepared to bear witness to stories. Now, my dad was a sniper in General Patton's army in World War II. He was also a very gentle man and very conflict avoidant. So that created in him what we call moral injury. And that's a kind of traumatic response when the context demands that you do something that goes against your most dearly held values. Hmm. So we, we didn't hear war stories until Saving Private Ryan came out. Huh. Then he, he began talking some, and he, he actually wrote a small memoir about some of his experiences. But here's the interesting thing is, he went to see his pastor. And it was very important to him. I mean, he was, gosh, probably mid-70s, maybe late 70s. It was very important to him that, in essence, he have confession and to be able to say, this is what I had to do. This is what my life was like. One of the most powerful things I talked about, the workshops I staffed, one of the most powerful elements of those workshops is of being heard and being witnessed because so often in our traumas, we feel like we can't talk about it either for shame or because somebody said, don't talk about it or because we're afraid of what people will think because we're not being strong and, you know, we should just power through. And so the grace of having your minister be able to listen to and hold that. Now, that being said, that means that for clergy, we have to have those places where we can also share. You know, I, I know Pinnacle has, has clergy cohorts, whether it's a small group that you've put together of supportive folks or, or something like a cohort, but the place to be able to talk about what it's like for you, the secondary trauma sometimes of hearing stories that may be just beyond imagination. Yeah. What does a trauma-informed ministry look like in the preaching role? How how would a trauma-informed minister kind of take that into the pulpit? So one of the things is, I don't like the word normalizing, um, but in essence, normalizing that this is a part of our life. Mm-hmm. In examples that you use, acknowledging the presence of trauma. Mm-hmm. I've heard several different pastors in different contexts just in the last week talk with, with church folks, either groups or congregations, about what ministering during COVID has been like for them. Mm, yeah. And the trauma that they have felt and the impact that it has had on them. So... To, to normalize things like getting counseling 
and that it's okay to get help. And that yes, when really terrible things happen and we have reactions to them, it's not a sign of our lack of faith, that we are not responsible when, when people hurt us, because like especially with abuse, the message gets communicated, this is your fault. So shame can be a, a really big element of what people carry with trauma. And so to be very aware, both in your preaching and just how you're doing church, being aware of where shame can can pop up, you know, never shame someone for saying no to the nominating committee. You know, <laughs> Jesus wants you to teach vacation Bible school. That's effective. <laughs> for a time and, until, until that person moves to another state to get away from it. Right. Uh, right. Um, but how we talk about sin and shame mm. is really important when you have people sitting out there who believe that they are fundamentally flawed or damaged or that God thinks less of them because they have been through this or because of the reactions they've had. Um, Singer-songwriter Fred Small has a, a song about abuse that he has a wonderful line in where he talks about forgiving ourselves what we did to survive. Mm. And so sometimes from the pulpit, people need to hear that word of forgiveness too. Yeah. And not in the sense of you, you have to forgive the person who hurt you in order to be right with God. Right. That's, that's a whole nother complex issue. <laughs> Right, right. So uh, pastoral care moments, being present, bearing witness, uh, preaching and other kind of upfront leadership, creating space for maybe normalizing, to use that word loosely, um, the, the, the stories of trauma and the trauma that we do experience in life, um, steering away of, sh of, of shame-inducing language and conversations. Mm -hmm. So are there other aspects of church ministry, ministry life, church community that we ought to be intentionally doing something different in or intentionally looking for ways to be more sensitive to, to people who are dealing with trauma? That's the same question I had before you get started, Peggy. I was thinking, yes. you know, if 66% of our people and some of our clergy, some of ourselves are dealing with trauma, well, you know, why aren't there more trauma support groups in our churches? I don't think I've ever served mm -hmm. in a church that had a, a trauma support group. Anyway, so I think that's a great question. So I'm interested to hear your answer, Peggy. Uh, one of the most concrete things is there's, there's church here in town that has, you know, it's one of those special funds. It was a bequest that someone left. And someone left money so that church members would always be able to get counseling and that finances would never be a barrier for them to get the help they need. So I know that's not the usual, but that is, is like such an enormous gift to be able to offer. Um, and, and Rhonda, to your question, why aren't there more support groups? Well, that shame is a big piece of it. Um, so to have churches that support services outside of the church, because sometimes people are, it's too vulnerable to talk about trauma with people you're going to be seeing in, in worship 
the next week. I think one of the important things for pastors also is to be aware, first of all, of your own experiences of trauma and also for your own reactions to trauma. Because one of the things that can happen is because of the biology of trauma, and and basically a real quick thumbnail here is that we have a, a lizard brain that you know controls the basic stuff of, of survival. And we have a neocortex that's kind of the frontal lobes that help us make decisions and evaluate consequences. Vanderkoek uses the image of the smoke alarm and the watch t- tower. So the smoke alarm goes off going, is this danger here? Is this danger here? The watchtower can assess, no, the house isn't on fire. I just burned the food. Mm-hmm. It sounds like my kitchen. <laughs> yes. Some of us can relate to that more than <laughs> others. What can happen is that for a traumatized person, that that smoke alarm is off. So they may react like out of all proportion. So for example, you put the second hymn after the scripture reading when you always have it before the scripture reading. And then you get an eight page single space typed letter (laughs) about how crushing and unspiritual and not following in the ways of God that that is our own response because it feels very personal because it was, you know, addressed to us. So it feels very personal is to react out of that. I think trauma-informed ministry allows us to take a step back and say, okay, this is, this is really out of proportion. I wonder what's going on here. And that when we meet with people who are escalating, that we're really um, aware of being grounded, hmm. of breathing deeply and slowly, and with, with mirroring, it's, it's really interesting in my, my workshop work, if somebody could be like all in their feelings, big feelings, but it felt like, okay, they needed to take a breath. They needed to ground. We didn't have to say to them, take a breath now. All we had to do was take a long, slow, deep breath ourselves. And then that's what they start doing. So to be aware of your own body reactions. Um, in my grandmother's hands, there's a great line. Um, Trauma is a wordless story. Our body tells itself about what is safe and what is a threat. Hmm. So to be aware of what's the story your body is telling and how can you calm your own systems down? I think another thing, because trauma is a body response, and in churches traditionally, we've not been really good about talking about our bodies. You know, we kind of act like we're disembodied souls. And truthfully, I have heard two sermons in a lifetime of church going that I can remember, two sermons about the body. One was the pastor was doing a series on the seven deadly sins. And after he had lost a bunch of weight, he preached on caring for the body. 
and he, he he was like, yeah, I, I wasn't going to preach this before, but I'm going to own it now. And then when we were talking about building uh, called the Wellness and Community Center, that includes a gym and, and activity. But then we, we don't talk about honoring our bodies, listening to our bodies. One of my CPE supervisors called our bodies the first gift of creation. Mm, it's like, like God's that. first gift to us. And so modeling and preaching uh, and giving people an opportunity to connect with their bodies, to care for them, to be able to listen to them, to learn things like meditation and yoga that allows them to self-soothe and to calm themselves. Yeah, thank you for that. As we're kind of drawing to a close, I wonder what resource, you've mentioned a couple of authors, um, what resources by way of books would you recommend? And then I want you to tell us a little bit about your workshop coming up. Okay. Um, two of the really outstanding books that have come out, one is The Body Keeps Score by Bessel van der Kolk. And he goes in into a lot about how, how trauma gets into our bodies and the impact it has both in terms of our reactions and in terms of illness and then ways that, that we can calm. The other one is My Grandmother's Hands by Risma Menekin, M-E-N-A-K-E-M. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, and it's a fascinating book about the impact of trauma on our bodies, about generational trauma, about trauma experienced by different cultures. And he, in it, he looks at white bodies, black bodies, and also police bodies and the traumas that all of those groups carry. Um, and, and he does a, a really wonderful way of explaining about how all of this impacts us. So I recommend both of them. Um, Vandercook's book is a, a thick, you got to get in and, and dig with it. Um, and in my grandmother's hands is, a, I think, a little bit more accessible. Great. And and tell us about, I know there's the, the trauma-informed coaching class. I think it's a series yes. that people could participate in through Pinnacle. Um, tell us about that. When is it getting started? Um, and we'll point people to the online registration form as well. Okay, great. Thank you. Yes, I'm starting. It's the Thursday after Easter. So it's the last Thursday in April, and I don't have that date right in front of me. And it goes for eight weeks. Thursdays, uh, 12 to one thirty, I think it is. Just over an hour. Mm -hmm. And it's good for coaches and uh, I think for clergy as well. And what we'll be covering in it is more in depth of what I've talked about here. Um, resources, how can it it affect the affect the work that you do and then the resources you have for how to approach, how to deal with this. Um, we're also going to be looking at the trauma of living through a pandemic and what that has meant more in depth and looking at generational trauma, hmm. which is a, a, a big and profound and important subject. Great. Thank you. I looked it up. It starts April the 28th from 12. You have from 12 to 115. So eight, an eight-week course. Yeah, thank you so much. 
I really appreciate the opportunity to, to come and talk about this. And I think even just having the awareness that, you know, you've got people who, who are dealing with this on some level, some of whom you may know about and some you may never know about. Well, it just seems very clear to me that this subject is at the heart of who you are and, mm-hmm. and what you have been about in your own ministry and, I'm really grateful that you've taken the time to share it with Rhonda and with me and with all who are listening. And I'm grateful that your work through Pinnacle is uh, sharing this both information, but insight, wisdom with the folks who are in the Pinnacle Network as well. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you, Peggy. Thank you. Well, that's it for the second episode of season four of Pastor Life Podcast. Rhonda, we are being taught some things we don't know, and we're coming away from these sessions knowing a little more than we did going in. I feel so smart. Look at me. (laughs) Well, and we're grateful for Peggy's participation today and uh, contact information for both of us, for Peggy, for all the rest of our Pinnacle team as well as notes for this episode. All of that and the registration for Peggy's upcoming course can all be found at pinlead.com. That's P-I-N-N-L-E-A-D.com. Her course can be found under the events tab on our website. And so to the pastors listening in, thank you for what you do. Take care of yourself. Do good work. We'll catch you next week.